welcome to the Unpacked Project. We're your hosts. I'm Noelle. And I'm Miranda. We're here to explore all things social justice. It's through casual conversations, interviews, and storytelling that we hope to inspire others to take action towards a more compassionate and equitable world. Because honestly, it kind of sucks here sometimes. (laughs) For real. We can do better, people. All right. Let's start unpacking. Welcome to today's show, everyone. We have our first guest and dear friend of mine, Dr. Ashley Williams, who's a senior policy analyst at the Center for the Study of Childcare Employment at UC Berkeley. In her role, she tracks, analyzes, and translates state and national ECE, or early childhood education, policy development, with a particular focus on issues related to the early education workforce, which is the lens we'll be focusing on today. An important one that sets the stage for the foundation foundational systems in place that contribute to the barriers and inequities within education in general. She's previously served as Associate Director of Advance, an ECE teacher preparation program at San Francisco State University, and over the past 16 years has worked in several roles in ECE, including serving as a Jumpstart Corps member, where she started her ECE journey, a preschool teacher, Head Start Center Director, and early childhood teacher educator at the undergraduate and master's level at SF State. So clearly a vast array of experience. And her professional work also extends internationally as she's uh, she's co-led a study abroad service learning program in ECE settings in South Africa and New Zealand as well. Overall, Dr. Williams' daily work and research is rooted in contributing to ECE systems in ways that dissolve and resolve inequities in ECE that negatively impact children, families, and educators. Work that we're all so grateful for. So that was a lot, right, as an introduction, (laughs) Um, but I definitely think you can share with our listeners a little bit more in depth about what it is that you do. Yeah. Um, So first, (laughs) as as you were reading that, I was just like, I'm ready to retire. (laughs) You just got your doctorate, like already? The work is just like, and I'm done. (laughs) Um, So thank you. Thank you uh, for having me. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be here with the Unpacked Project. Um, Excited about this mission and vision of this work um, and excited to be amongst company of friends as well. So um, currently what I do, so I am the senior policy analyst uh, at the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Mm -hmm. Berkeley. And our work is really centered around the ECE workforce. So the center actually has a long history. It has been doing this work for over 20 years um, under the leadership and vision of Dr. Marcy Whitebook, mm-hmm. uh, who conducted literally the nation's first early childhood workforce study um, to really bring these issues um, to the surface. As she started as an educator herself and was just like, hey, so something's going on here. Something's going on with our wages. Um, And, um, you know, over the past 10 years, Dr. Leah Austin um, joined the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment, and um, I am just so enamored and love working under her leadership. She is now the director of the center, and uh, and I'll just say the center because CSCCE or the job title, it's just long, so I just say the center (laughs) at this point. Um, But, you know, their work for the past, you know, 20 years has really been focused on um, conducting research. So we um, do workforce inventories, uh, looking at, you know, across states, across the 50 states. Uh, We're actually going to be launching one um, in December, looking 
at, you know, how policies are either stalled moving forward as far as workforce support, compensation, education, and things like that. We have a higher education inventory. So some really robust uh, research studies on the workforce uh, that our center does, as well as um, proposing policy solutions and policy analysis uh, that is centered on the workforce. And that piece is um, why I was brought on. So my role is new at the center. I started in February, saw these folks six times, and then we had a pandemic. So <laughs> um, <Surprise. laughs> right. But I think my value add to the team is in my lived experience as an early educator myself. Um, and so, you know, policy, there is not a career lattice that's like, you know, you want to go from the preschool classroom to leadership in ECE. That's not there. So I will say, you know, in full transparency, I'm working hard every day to make sense of this shit mm -hmm. because <laughs> it's just like, wow, like how so much is lost. But I think yeah. what's central and what, what I bring and what, what the center values is centering the workforce. I mean, we, we can have all the data that we want, but if policymakers, parents, other educators, educational systems don't understand the value of the workforce, then our work is not done. Yeah. Um, so that keeps me busy every single day. And I'm such, um, I'm just, it's such an honor to be a student of this work and to be engaging in this work and also being able to talk with early educators as a core piece of my work as well. So um, that's what I be doing. Um, <laughs> I, I love it. I would say right now I'm in a moment where I'm, I'm in my dream job. So it's like, I want to retire. Oh, that's awesome because I'm tired. Yeah, exactly. I'm also doing this work that excites me every yeah. single morning. That's yeah. beautiful. So when we first think of early childhood education, uh, you know, we, it's really deemed to be birth to five. Mm -hmm. I, I really think there are two aspects that are commonly overlooked that we're hoping you can kind of help us shed some light on. So one being the fact that it is a vital part of a child's education. You know, I think people a lot of times just think kindergarten and up is what right. our child's education is when, you know, education starts. But really, ECE is a vital aspect to that, that birth to five range. Um, and then also that it's essential for the U.S. labor force. Right. So can you speak to the importance of this work in regards to child development and then also the impacts on society just from a labor lens? Yes, yes. You know, I would say like the research is out there. So there have been countless empirical studies, longitudinal studies on ECE um, to really just establish the importance of it on, you know, social, emotional, physical, cognitive development um, and how this actually really supports children um, in, you know, in the long term as well, like as they, as well into adulthood, like there are some adults, I was just like, oh, you didn't go to preschool, did you? Um, <laughs> yes. So we, you know, there's, there's studies like, you know, the high school Perry preschool project, and there's so many studies that have made this case, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would say more recently, there has been more of the scientific lens that really has deemed, as you're saying, Noel, birth to five is the most critical moment of brain development. So mm -hmm. this is a critical period where we have our, our tiny humans that we are really shaping um, what they come to be as an adult. And so I think um, what's important about this is that in my lens in the workforce, because the workforce is my jam and I'm always going to kind of lead with that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, this work to do this is brain architecture, right? So it's first, it's really important to understand that the work that early educators do is brain architecture and it takes skill, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what they're doing to build enriching experiences that not only impact learning, but their actual development. Um, and it needs to be recognized and respected as such, period. Okay. But then when we think about the impacts on the labor force, right? So it's not just as the crux of human development, but it's the underpinning of, you know, really supporting people to be able to go to work, go to school each day, right? And we've moved beyond, and, and ECE kind of really started, there's a the historical context that was really like, okay, we need somewhere safe for these kids to be while people go to work. It's not that simple, but for the meaning. <laughs> so it was like, we just need somewhere for it to be safe. And a, for a long time attached to ECE was this, this narrative that, oh, they're just babysitters. They're just watching the children, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which is why early care, so the care and education has to be emphasized together, right? Because it's both care and education. And schools do this as well. I mean, K through 12 does this as well. As much as we want to say they don't, they also are providing care and somewhere safe for these kids to be while parents are at work. Um, and I think um, I emphasize that while we're in the midst of a pandemic and people are in denial about that. But it's, it's really important that we move kind of beyond understanding ECE is just babysitters, even though it seems like right now in this current moment, 2020, what, what month were you in? October? <laughs> yeah, um, right. Right, right. So now people are kind of like back at like, oh, babysitter. But it's, that that's important to know. But what is important is that it's it's critical for people to be able to go to work, especially now and also return to work, right? And the impacts on the labor force specifically is on women. Yeah. Um, and that has kind of been historically so <laughs> um, for lots of reasons, you know, women are kind of, you know, doing most of the child rearing. And now that they're in the labor force, um, you know, if they're not able to have somewhere for their children to be, then they must assume, you know, that care responsibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I just read an article this morning that said that um, as of last month, so September, which was like two days ago, which I still am like, how are we in 2020? <laughs> but they said that women are four times more like, or women are four times mm -hmm. or dropping out of the workforce four times more than men right now. Yeah. And so when we think about the issue of childcare um, and access or schools and access, because schools are also providing childcare, um, it's really disproportionately impacting women, right? So it's an issue of women's right to work, and that has a long history um, in the United States. But, you know, we, we also have to understand that um, as folks are making the, the case for the labor force, um, for, you know, having ECE to support people to be able to go back to work. Um, we, we, we're missing the point that the ECE workforce is also largely women. It's 97% of women. So even mm -hmm. when we're talking about, I've seen a lot of uh, political platforms, it's just like, yes, support women to work. And like, yes, you know, we're going to do childcare and all of that. But still, somehow they're ignoring the fact that there are women who are actually doing the childcare work, right? right and so right. there's a workforce that supports this workforce to be able to work yeah. that largely has been 
um, ignored. And I'll talk a little bit more deeply about that. But um, our workforce, our childcare workforce is earning poverty level wages nationally across mm -hmm. the states, right? Um, to what extent it depends. So I think the frame of sending mothers to work, it can't be absent of the discussion of the ECE workforce um, because they, their working conditions are poor, right? And so if their working conditions are poor, if they are not stable, that's calling mothers back. If they're not feeling like, okay, I have, you know, a stable teacher in the classroom, you know, there's retention. I can rely on these folks to be able to show up every day or especially in a pandemic. Uh, they're not shutting down every other week because there's cases of COVID popping up in mm -hmm. childcare. Uh, if they can't rely on that, they can't securely return to the workforce. Um, and so I think that, yes, I think that the, when we talk about the general workforce, we also have to be talking about the ECE workforce. Oh, definitely, definitely. So you, know, you just brought up the stat about 97% of the workforce is women, right? Mm -hmm. um, so with 65% of parents in the labor force in the United States, the majority of our country relies on early childhood educators to teach and care for these kids daily, right? right? But there's still inadequate wages and meager benefits. They're commonplace, right, in this field. So when we look at K-12, while in many regards still underpaid, the benefits of ECE pale in comparison. So right. can you tell us a little bit about why this continues to be an issue? Yes. Uh, why continues an issue? Like, yeah. so it just gets on my nerves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just get it right, people. Just like, if only it was that it simple. It just gets on my nerves. But to say it simply, to say it most simply, K through 12 is considered a public good. Yeah. Um, and by public good, that means that the government is providing some type of financial support because there is an awareness that this service is good for the public to have, good for the public to have access to. For example, like clean air and water. Um, Imagine that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's still issues around that as well, but right, you know, exactly. yeah, we'll cover that in another episode. Right, right. All you have to do is say Flint, Michigan. Right. Um, so in theory, that's how a public good works, right? And so K through 12 is considered a public good. Now, when we talk about quality, that varies, right? But baseline, yeah. it's a public good. Um, and while ECE has increasingly been, been seen as important, you know, we, we have all of this empirical research, we have all this brain development, people are adding it to their policy platforms, but it's still not seen as a public good, right? Yeah. Um, and so that, that bottom line is why I, one reason why it continues to be an issue. So that's kind of my policy lens on it. Mm -hmm. My reality lens, um, racism, okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, um, <laughs> so it's an issue because first, um, the K through 12 workforce is whiter than the ECE workforce. So they, we have more of a diversity of women of color in the ECE workforce, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's important to call out. And I think um, one of the clearest examples we can see of this and see of this divide and, and while people might say, oh, it's different or people think differently about K through 12 or ECE, it is an issue of race. Again, like I said, because of the racial makeup of the workforce, especially in California, where it's my home state, Miranda, your home state, remember, come visit us. Um, <laughs> Um, but the clearest, the clearest uh, example of this devaluation of the ECE workforce versus K through 12 is how it's being treated in this 
pandemic in this very moment. We see that K through 12 schools are closed, closed immediately. Um, while childcare has remained open, some never closed. Mm. And with we're also finding in our studies, uh, particularly in the state of California, where programs are still trying to access personal protective equipment. They're still trying to access uh, cleaning supplies to do this work safely, right? And so while K through 12 has remained closed, so that is like one example of like what, why is it that K through 12 can be closed down and childcare can be open? Yeah. I think another aspect of that is that, you know, how dollars are dis distributed, right? So there's not a lot of public investment in ECE. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, K through 12, again, is that public good. This is nothing new, but I think it really ties when I put on that reality lens and that racism lens, we have a deep rooted history of undervaluing labor that's performed by women and yep. people of color, yep. right? And the prime example of this is, we can look at slavery. Yep. The experiences <laughs> of enslaved black women expect, mm -hmm. expected to care for white children with priority over their own, their own flesh and blood, mm -hmm. right? And the most like deplorable conditions and dehumanizing conditions and, and this is the foundation of the creation of childcare. Yep. So this is how childcare was created. And we continue to see that, and childcare is one of the most underpaid pro 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 professions in this country. Um, so nationally, early educators earn a median wage of $12.12. .12. I'm just gonna put this out there. There's a real thing called hashtag fight for 15. And when I say that the median wage is 12-12 across the nation, so we're not even at minimum wage. So they're earning poverty levels. Um, and this is true in each state. And so I think in comparison also of their K-12 K counterparts, um, early educators are experiencing these poverty weight rates um, at four to 14 times higher than K-12 educators, right? And so, and not to say, and the wages in K through 12 are also problematic. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not saying not to say, you know, both, both are But terrible. in comparison, in comparison right. to already poor system. Really right, right. <laughs> and, and the, and it could be again, due to the fact of the reality of racism and systemic present, uh, oppression that's really present in ECE. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, that there's 40% of people of color that are doing this work mm -hmm. in contrast to more than 80% of the K through 12 workforce, which is white. Um, so I would just say, I think that honestly is the deepest and the most, um, the reality that needs to be interrogated the most right now um, as to why this is continue, continuing to be a problem. Yeah. So, you know, you bring up a lot of disparities within the wages and, you know, racial disparities that we see within the system. And, you know, we can see this across the board in ECE. Uh, and it can vary from program to program. But most notably, you know, I think about federally funded programs like Head Start, Mm -hmm. versus more tuition or fee-based fee preschools. Um, you know, Head Start is meant to provide support to low-income communities. Um, but we see when we look at the, the data on that, Head Start is serving less than 40% of three- and four-year-olds living in poverty mm -hmm. and less than 5% of children under three living in poverty. 
So we're just trying to understand why is this and, you know, what can be done to move towards a more streamlined approach in ECE? Right. I think one of the things in ECE is very complex, right? Uh, We have a mixed delivery system. um, And yet that mixed delivery system is deeply fragmented. So as you said, like you could have Head Start educators, you know, earning one one wage versus fee-based programs earning another. The requirements of what those teachers are supposed to do in Head Start are, are also somewhat different or vary from what's required in private. So there, it's just deeply fragmented. Um, you know, someone said once, it's like, oh, it's like a bifurcated system between, you know, public and private pre-K. And I'm like, oh, it's like trifurcated or, or like, I don't know how many cadence. <laughs> it's a bunch of cadence, right? It's very, um, and so we, you know, these disparities, it, it's not, it, it really varies from access for families. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it varies in access to um, early learning for infants and toddlers and wages for educators, right? So there, there's lots of disparities because of how um, the system is set up. And for example, in preschool centers, um, teachers that work with infants and toddlers that actually make about $8,000 less than teachers that work with five, four and five-year-olds, wow. right? Hmm. And so... This this is a particular harm, and I, I, I note this because Black early educators are the ones who are most likely to be working with infants and toddlers. Hmm. And this harm extends to Latinx and immigrant educators, uh, as well as Black educators, also in family child care homes. And so, you know, as you shared, Head Start only serves a portion of these families. So a more streamlined approach is universal child care. And what we, what we hear people talking about most is universal preschool. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has varying levels. Like there's varying levels. States do this differently. But I, I think when I kind of zoom out so I don't get too much in the weeds, um, you know, these varying levels of universal preschool usually might focus specifically on income eligible families or families who are receiving subsidies. So again, that that creates that bifurcation of the private and the, the public uh, preschool system. Um, and so while, you know, universal pre-K is a, it's an important step, it's not going to get us the change that we need to if it's not across all preschools, right? If it's only for one aspect. And it's, again, it, it's a step. Like it, it, it could be a short-term solution, but in the long-term, it's not, it's not gonna get us the change that we need to see. Um, and it's, it's, when I think about the impact on families, so, you know, like you said, there's their families who are accessing the subsidy or the subsidized childcare, and those who are not, are paying upwards of about $10,000 a year for childcare. Mm. Now that's probably more than a mortgage. That was more than my tuition Well, per year. I mean, well, it depends on what time I was in school. I was in school a lot of time. But like, you know, even yeah. my, un- like, far more than my undergrad college tuition. Mm-hmm. And so parents are like shelling out the, this money, you know, for childcare. And I think, um, what we fail to kind of really recognize is that there, 
you know, parents can't pay anymore um, and teachers can't earn any less. Right. And so in there, there's a, there's a third payer, right? So there needs to be a third payer. And so I think that when we think about universal childcare, so this means that there is universal access across the public and private um, sector for children birth to five years old, <laughs> right? Because there's also that disparity again for infants and toddlers and families accessing infant and toddler care, which is very, very pricey. And so, you know, it's, it's this, um, this number. So this idea of universal childcare, actually um, the center where I work at produced a values-based budget for the state of California. Mm-hmm to really demonstrate what the cost of quality is. And that the cost of quality is gonna be critical because sure, you can give all these families access, but if you continue to underfund the system, it's gonna be subsidized by the wages of early educators, right? Mm -hmm. And that has been what's been happening. So people are like, yeah, we got more families in, yeah. Um, But still educators are making poverty level wages. So as even as we're drawing down more dollars for access for families, Educators aren't seeing that in their compensation, right? And so even in our values-based budget, they, they estimated it would cost about thirty dollars to $37,000 annually per child in California, right? And needless to say, like, right. it was a sticker shock, like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah we all just made wide eyes for <laughs> listeners. Like, we're like, right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, but the question I raise here is, are we – actively going to continue forcing the women that perform this work into poverty Mm. um, while still failing to meet the needs of children and families, right? And so we've yet to serve children, families, and educators well. Um, And so we have to recognize ECE as a public good and also pay the cost of quality early education, right? And that includes compensation for the educators doing this work. Because as we've seen time and time over again, the cost of not investing in ECE is much greater. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You know, and I'm, I'm so glad that previously you touched on, um, you know, how ECE is really just the, how systemic oppression and racism is embedded in ECE, right? And so- It's here, y'all. It's here. Yeah, it's all up right? in and, You know, and so we talked about that in our last episode, but there's, there's so many ways to relate it to that, right? So we're talking about how we keep oppressing the black community really, which is, you know, the labor force in ECE. But then we talk about um, what some may know as a school to prison pipeline, which is in fact the cradle to prison pipeline. Right. And, you know, there's, so the data that you mentioned earlier, how is the ECE, how is the ECE system supporting that pipeline as well, right? Because we talk about the labor force, but then what about the children? Right. Oh, um, I think, it's reinforced in so many ways, right? Um, And I think, and when I trace back how that's reinforced, right? When I think about the first level of reinforcement is um, at the the teacher level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and this is not to limit or discount my argument that educators need to be paid for the work that they're doing, right? Yeah. But teacher bias is a real thing. Uh, And it's also real in early childhood. Um, And it's also real across any institution, including higher education. Mm -hmm. I myself have had professors that I'm just like, so you 
are clearly, you know, engaging with me in some very oppressive and racist ass ways. But this is not, this is not going to take any money out of you. You're still going to get paid. They still get paid, right? So, so like, this is not to discount what I'm saying about compensation, but teacher bias is real, Mm -hmm. right? We've seen studies out of Yale on uh, teacher bias in, in early education, implicit and explicit bias. Um, And then when I think about, so, but it's also, it's also just not the teachers and how they're enacting their work with children, right? It's not just that level. I take it a step back and I say, well, hmm, who taught you to teach that way? Mm -hmm. Who Mm -hmm. taught you to teach like that, right? And so when I think about how it's being reinforced, uh, just in my experience in as being an early educator and thinking about, well, how did I learn? Like, how, it, it was higher ed. <laughs> it was higher ed and the role of higher education and higher education really shapes the epistemologies that determine how teachers teach our babies, yeah. right? Um, and we also have to recognize itself that higher education is an institution of systemic racism yeah. itself. Uh, as is ECE, as is K through 12, as is K uh, community college. So these mm-hmm. are still, these are institutions that um, perpetuate and, and just are entrenched in uh, hegemonic perspectives, white supremacist perspectives that harm students of color, children of color, families of color, communities of color, right? Yeah. And so there's a, there, there's a role of higher education. And I think that we have to interrogate that. Um, and so I, that could, I'm sure you're probably going to do an episode on that. So I won't go that. <laughs> but, but I think about, we really have to interrogate uh, who are the faculty that we're putting in front of prospective teachers, right? By and large, um, in higher ed, faculty are more likely to be white than students, right? So that, that, that's, a, that's a thing. So when you think about who's shaping the, the teaching of the teachers, um, that's an aspect of it. Then we also have to think about what actual content are we putting in front of prospective teachers yeah. and teacher candidates, right? Um, how, you know, a lot of theory and ideas that shape child development, human development, um, I would say in 2020 would not make it quite well through the anti-racist filter, if, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so, you know, so how often are we bringing in, you know, ideas that actually understand this uh, in, our, in our modern time? I can think of folks such as Zaretta Hammond, who uh, writes about culturally responsing, responsive teaching in the brain, right? Um, so she's incorporating science and also respecting and understanding the capital of culture that children and families have that cannot continue to be undermined, which, you know, we're kind of taught through a hegemonic, like a, a, a white is normal, white yep. typically developing oh, economically goodness. stable child development lens that others, um, children who are dual language learners, who are economically, you know, vulnerable, who are Black, who, who, how, who have special needs. These children are othered, right? So we talk about them in case you encounter them, right? But it makes me think about how we do not center, how we don't design at the margins. So if we were to look at the margins in higher ed or how we're preparing teachers to teach or their competencies, their skills, if we looked at the margins and actually centered them, 
as a, as a point of inclusion. So if you, if you talked about inclusion and anti-racist practices as the core of human development, like it, if you coupled that way, it wouldn't other these other children. And so I think that, you know, we focus in a lot on skills and competencies, but we also have to interrogate and help prepare them to kind of mitigate those beliefs and dispositions because we all have bias, right? Um, But in higher ed, if if prospective teachers are, you know, oh yeah, you're ready to go. You have your credentials, you have the credits, you have the degree, you're ready to go out and work in a community um, and not have that anti-racist, that, that, lens that respects and honors the cultural abundance of capital that communities of color have, mm-hmm. we're not making any change. Yeah. We're not making any change. And to me, I'm, I'm very, very concerned about this because in ECE, we already see that our babies are begin, beginning to be criminalized. Yeah. Black preschoolers are found to be three times more likely to be expelled than their white classmates, right? And we don't like to talk about, oh, no, an ECE, we don't do that. We don't, yes, you do. Yes, yeah. you do. <laughs> it's happening. You, it, you might not <laughs> call it that. You might yeah. not call it that. But if baby Ashley is 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 feeling active and, and bubbly and bumpy during circle time, you're going to keep calling my mama until she has to take off work to come pick me mm-hmm. up. Because in that that is a form of, expelling, Mm -hmm. uh, suspending that we don't talk about that we actively do. And if you hear me, you know, you do it. You need to stop. Um, (laughs) But I say say that because it it really concerns me because there's little space for humanity for black bodies in this country. Yes. And we've seen that bright, clear as day right now um, in the state sanctioned murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Arbery, so on. And this is just 2020. Mm-hmm. Like we're just hitting, I don't even know what month we're in again. <laughs> just tell me and I forgot. <laughs> it's but, October. We but, still have a little ways yeah, left, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, right. And so I think it's really critical that we understand these issues in our role as ECE and our role in ECE in the cradle to prison pipeline. Um, and how we're dismantling practices via competencies, via how we teach teachers to teach babies, all of that has to be under interrogation and needs to stop because honestly, we're facing a cradle to coffin pipeline if we don't mm. deal with the moral compass mm. of this country that has been guided by white supremacy. Yeah. And we have to break that path and find another way. Mm-hmm. So that's it's just all so much to take in. I know um, you've shared some really great things with us today. And our last episode, we were talking about the systemic yeah. racism, right? And um, how our institutions um, and how these systems within our country are perpetuating all of this. And one of the things that, you know, it came down to was, are we okay with these things? You know, as a society, what are we valuing, right. you know? And we can, when you hear, when I hear things of like, which I didn't even realize until we talked today, how what a high percentage of black women are teaching, especially with infants and toddlers. And then we look at how much more disproportionately, how many more white females are in K to 12 education right. and these poverty wages versus you know, higher salaries and race being a very big defining factor there. It's just like, you know, again, confronting and realizing that these systems are continuing to perpetuate this. So, you know, when you, we think of, 
of our ECE system, how would you reimagine it to be a more just and equitable system for, for all of our babies yeah, <laughs> and our, and our workers, right? Cause we right. talked about the labor force, like this, this intersection of right. the children and the workers. Right. I think, I think that's such an important question that I'm, I'm really struggling with mm-hmm. um, because I think right now um, we're <laughs> in two pandemics, right? We're mm-hmm. in the, the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic and this racial reckoning um, yeah. in, in the United States that's always been there. It's just now mm-hmm. people have social media and mm-hmm. like there's hashtags and people are like, oh, this is a real thing. We've been through mm-hmm. It's been happening. <laughs> it's been happening. We've known. We've yeah. Right. But, you know, and so when I think about ECE, like we're really grappling with this and it's so complicated. And I've, you know, I've also been in a national working group that's just like, you know, if we, what, how, how do we reimagine or rebuild um, these things? And I still kind of struggle with that because I'm like, what are we building again? Yeah. What? Like, it reminds me of, making something great again, which is problematic if it wasn't okay. great in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Great for who? And so when I'm like rebuilding the system for who? And so when I think about that, I think that me as well as many advocates and folks in ECE that are doing this work, we're really struggling because what we knew to be the ECE system before was already problematic and has been extremely exacerbated by these two pandemics. And so it's really hard for me to answer that question because we have to kind of unpack and be like, well, how did we get here in the first place? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I, what I can say is that in, when we, when we're thinking about a radical or revolutionary revisioning of ECE, it has to, I can say what it would, some things that it has to have. I don't have all of the answers yet because I think we're, we're really, grappling with this, at least me and my team are. And it's taken us a few months to kind of wrap our heads around it, right? Because you don't want the same thing you had before. Um, One thing that, so, and people have already, you know, been rushing to put out, I don't want to say rushing, uh, because I don't want to make judgments on people who have already put things out, but they've been putting out proposals, right? This is what it will look like. This is what the funding stream will look like. Uh, This is what access, this is what professional development might look like. Um, But what I've been seeing or what I've been noticing each time is that it's missing two critical things. First, the workforce, the ECE Mm -hmm. workforce. So they continue to center, you know, access for children and family and funding to support that disconnected from strategies and acknowledgement for the need for higher compensation for the Mm -hmm. workforce that are doing this, right? Mm -hmm. And this is critical because to me, it seems simple, and I'll try to say it simply. Children's learning environments that we're trying to push access and funding for them to access and have, their learning environments are literally teacher's work environments. Like, it's the same thing. (laughs) It's the same exact thing. Maybe you have a break room. But besides that, like, it's the same thing. So Mm -hmm. if teacher's work environments, if their working conditions are poor, what are we fighting for access Mm -hmm. to, right? Mm -hmm. And so these two things 
are inextricably linked, like they have to be together. So when we're talking about what children and families need, we have to also be talking about what educators need Mm -hmm. if we want quality education, if we want equitable, just education. So that that piece, so the, the workforce cannot be invisible. The second piece that has been missing, drum roll please, the workforce. Again. <laughs> <laughs> so again, um, if anybody, so the workforce, <laughs> the workforce. If anybody on this planet has ideas about how to create an equitable and just system in ECE, it's educators themselves. They are doing Jeez, this work. What a concept! People right? doing the what a con- we have to ask them we have to involve them they have to have a seat at the table they have to have their own table of power to be informing and shaping policy solutions research whatever it is that we're trying to get at educators have to be at the crux of this right and so I, I will say that again you know we're really grappling with it our team is working on it and when we um when we're done you know I, I will definitely share, but mm-hmm. I will say that we are, um, we're taking an approach on, on centering the fact that we need to be focusing on realizing rights for early yeah. educators. Yeah. So when we think about rights, it's a different frame, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we, we need to recognize that educators have the right to be acknowledged, respected for the skilled brain architecture that they are doing with young children, and they need to be paid justly and fairly for yeah. that yeah. so that's the frame that we're coming from when we are done i will share mm-hmm. that uh, with this <laughs> come teaching. back come back and visit us <laughs> right you know, yes. let us know we'll put it up on our website yes no yes. and you know and i think the thing is uh there's no there's no right answer necessarily yeah. but there right. are things that we can do better mm-hmm. there are so many things that we can be doing better and just listening to the people in the workforce is huge and we see that in so many systems in society mm-hmm. right like management and higher up just putting laws and policy in place and they just have they're so disconnected you know so why not ask the folks that are on the ground doing the work um so thank you so much for your time today truly appreciate you being here um before we go though uh can you tell us either some social media platforms we can find you on or other organizations doing this work for folks you know a lot of folks right noelle and i we've worked with children in different capacities you know obviously this is your realm but for folks that aren't familiar with this where can they go to to be an ally where can they find more information on this work Um, let us know right so I would say a good starting place is um, at the Center for the Study of Childcare Employment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can find us at cscce.berkeley.edu. Okay. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at cscce at UC Berkeley. Um, <laughs> just to kind of follow, and we're on Facebook, we're on all of those things, LinkedIn, all of those things. Um, just to kind of help the framing of the issue and just to kind of see some of the research and policy solutions that we've been putting out. Also, if there are things that we, um, we want, we highlight, we also highlight them on those platforms. So I would say um, that's just a good place to start. That is where I fangirled. Like literally, I, to me, working with Marcy and Leah is like Beyonce and Kelly and I get so high. So like before I started working with them, I'm like, oh my God, these people, they finally get it. They, these, these, these people get it. So they get it. Uh, we get it because I work there now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, check out those platforms. I also will say um, 
for me personally, I had to update my Twitter, you know. Um, so now I'm Dr. Ash W. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so Dr. Ash W underscore four, the, le- uh, the number four, ECE. So Dr. Ash W four ECE. You can find me there on Twitter and as well on LinkedIn under Ashley C. Williams. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, next week, we'll continue discussing equity in education with Christy Leader as we explore how schools can better engage with and support families through a culturally responsive and anti-bias framework. As a reminder, if you're interested in referencing or learning more about what we discussed today, please be sure to check out our show notes on our website. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Bye. Bye. The Unpacked Project is produced by Vicki Lee, branding and marketing by Raquel Avalos. Show us some love and be sure to like, subscribe, and review our podcast. And to stay connected and up to date, follow us on Instagram at the underscore Unpacked Project. Shout out to all of our listeners who unpacked with us today. We'll see you next week. Peace. Bye. Bye.